Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Green Podcast. My name's Justin Clark. In this episode, I speak to Captain Charles Moore, who has been studying the problem of plastic pollution in the oceans for nearly 20 years. We discuss a variety of topics, including why so much plastic winds up in the oceans and where it comes from, the damage that that plastic does, aside from simply looking ugly, including how it contributes to climate change, who Captain Moore admires most in his field, his favorite books, and much more. Captain Moore has appeared on David Letterman, The Colbert Report, National Geographic, The New York Times, Nightline, and many others, and it was really an honor to speak to him for this first episode of the Green Podcast. I hope you enjoy it, and here it is. Welcome to the Green Podcast. My name is Justin Clark, and with me is Captain Charles Moore, who for almost 20 years has been doing research and building awareness about the problem of plastic in the oceans. Captain Moore, I first heard about your work last year when I watched the documentary Bag It, and since then I've done more research and I, I keep coming across your work over and over again. And uh, your work along with everything else I've learned, has caused me to significantly reduce my own plastic consumption. So uh, I want to welcome you to the show and also thank you for the positive impact that you have had on how I live my life. So, well, welcome. Uh, I'm glad to be with you, and I, I'd just like to mention that uh, one of the ways in which we've been able to make a powerful message is that we're independent. You know, We're not funded by large corporations that muzzle our research and our, therefore our research can go in directions that may make industry look bad and 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 you just can't do that if you're a big institution that rely on industry support right so before we get jump into the work that your organization is doing today uh, i just wanted to go back in time and ask you at what point in your life was it that you first started caring about the state of the planet and the environment and do you remember if there was anything in particular that brought that on? Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I've, I've been called a nature boy <laughs> by uh, a whale scientist once on an expedition to San Ignacio Lagoon. Um, I grew up, you know, running around naked down in Baja, California. I've, I've got home movies and 16 millimeter of my mother took of me. You know, in the Gulf of California, the grunion run in the daytime. They usually they have grunion runs at night here, but in there the tides are such that they run in the daytime. And I'm filling up my underwear with grunion, <laughs> running down the beach. So I've had an appreciation for natural phenomena for uh, since infancy. Uh, so uh, when I see a deterioration in my habitat. Uh, it rubs me the wrong way. Right, and someone for someone like myself who's never lived near the ocean, I don't know what a grunion is. What's a grunion? Uh, it's a smelt-like uh, fish that spawns in the sand so that uh, at the highest tide of the month, it will come up and deposit eggs way up in the sand, and then the sun will warm them up, they'll hatch, and then at the next high tide, they'll wash back into the sea as larval Grunion. Uh, so people harvest these spawning smelt-like uh, fish uh, or just observe them when they come, and it's usually on a full moon when you have a high tide. But in the Gulf of California, 
there's a huge tidal range, 26 feet. And, you know, uh, so therefore there, there's plenty of opportunity for these fish to find habitat to, to spawn in during the daytime. And, and they, they spawn in the daytime down there. So I basically have this six-inch long wiggling fish uh, in, my, in my underwear <laughs> as a child. So uh, that was, uh, I, I'm afraid that's more graphic than I was shooting for. But uh, That's uh, very interesting. So uh, now, obviously, you're focused on the issue of plastic in the oceans. How did you get into that? How did you first uh, become well, aware I, of the problem? I, I had an interest in trash and, and what people threw away. I mean, when my father took us to uh, Kona when I was a child, uh, one of the places we visited was the dump. He liked to see what people were throwing away. You know, here you are in Hawaii, which is a natural wonderland, and and my dad takes us to the dump. So uh, I've always had a kind of an interest in trash uh, and what goes on behind the scenes of, you know, the front of society. And as so the, the current situation with, with plastic in the oceans, I... Uh, was actually not aware of it until uh, about last year when I started and I found out about you and I started doing some research. So for people who aren't familiar at all with what the situation is, can you just kind of give an overview? Well, you know, um, we have this miracle material uh, that has so many use values that it has taken over the planet. It's uh, the age of plastic, uh, that's no understatement. Uh, that material defines this age. And it's being used everywhere on the planet, and it ha has qualities that uh, mimic every natural substance, but also go beyond them uh, because it's so non-biodegradable. Uh, so it's this new material that the oceans never had to deal with, the lands never had to deal with, uh, a synthetic polymer, a long chain with a carbon backbone locked together that is longer than any carbon chain in nature. Even lignin that took the dinosaurs 10 million years to learn how to digest, uh, it, the, the carbon molecule is bigger than natural polymers uh, in, a, in a synthetic uh, plastic. So nature has no ready-made degraders for this material and, and the ocean is downhill from everywhere so this stuff one of the virtues of it is it's lighter than most of the natural materials it replaces so it tends to blow and wash downhill and end up in the ocean now there are plastics that will sink in ocean water and they end up in the sediments along the seashore and the coastal zone and then there's floating plastic which are mostly the olefins which are polyethylene, polypropylene, those float out uh, by the currents kind of scouring the coastlines on uh, the North and uh, North American continent, uh, South American, and then along Asian coastlines. These currents kind of sweep in a circle, and it takes about six years to make a period of rotation from Los Angeles back to Los Angeles, and that time frame is uh, shortened when it comes from Asia. In Asia, the material gets out to this garbage patch in about six months. Like after the tsunami, people were seeing boats out there uh, relatively soon. But our stuff goes down by the equator, goes out in the middle of the ocean, goes back up uh, from Vietnam past Philippines and Japan, and then turns right with the Kurashio current and comes back to this garbage patch. So 
when we find stuff out there, the writing is predominantly Asian because this may only have been there for a year or so. Mm. But uh, we don't, we're not able to identify how much North American trash is out there because by the time it gets there, it's fragmented. So um, the stuff uh, is a material that's persistent. It doesn't go away readily, and therefore uh, the floating fraction of it is retained in circular convergent zones called gyres that uh, are in the North and South Atlantic, the North and South Pacific, and in the Indian Ocean. You mentioned the word garbage patch a couple of times. Can you explain what the garbage patch is? Well, you know, if anyone should be able to do it, I should be able to do it, because I've been there ten times. But I'm having a heck of a time trying to tell you what it is. Uh, it's like somebody threw a trash can in your swimming pool, and the stuff that floated was floating around in your swimming pool for hundreds and hundreds of miles, all right? Uh Sometimes the trash is touching another piece of trash. Most of the time it's not. Most of the time there's some distance between bits of trash, but they can be everything from millimeter-sized particles all the way up to uh, an island we found this last time that was 50, 25 feet wide by 80 feet long, made out of 70 buoys and had rope on it, and you could walk around on it. That's 1,000 miles from land. So th the impression I'm getting is it's basically hundreds of square miles of this kind of plastic soup. Would you say that's a good way to describe it? Uh, I, I used to call it a plastic soup. Uh, now it's starting to be more like a casserole. <laughs> it's, uh, there's so much stuff out there that you're like an icebreaker plowing through it. Um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's um, limited in terms of its area are very difficult to determine because there is no true limit to these bits of trash. The, the, there's going to be fewer bits of trash as you uh, leave the center of these uh, areas, but they, what, what is your cutoff point? Is it going to be 10,000 pieces per square kilometer, you know, 100,000 pieces per square kilometer? It's not uncommon to find 100,000 flakes of plastic per square kilometer in these areas. So uh, you have to decide where you think the edge is. And we, we don't, we haven't made that decision. That would, you know, uh, that would require a, a kind of an international body to convene and determine uh, limits on this kind of pollution. But the only government body that's done that is in uh, the European Union where they've uh, said that 0 0.1 grams of plastic inside a northern fulmar bird uh, has to be attained for, like, I think 70% uh, of the population for the, for the plastic not to be considered a uh, dangerous pollutant, you know, for it to be a, a tolerable situation. So there's a very tiny amount of plastic that, that we think won't harm animals out in the ocean, and that amount is increasing rapidly. Hmm. So you mentioned that you've, you've been out there ten times. Is, is, there, is this, this one garbage patch, like one giant? My, my experience uh, in the eastern garbage patch, which is like the eastern eye, uh, some people have compared it to a dog bone with two knuckles on either end. One is the western garbage patch off Japan, and the other is the eastern garbage patch between San Francisco and Hawaii. And in between those two knuckles are 
convergent zone that stretches all the way past the international dateline. Uh, that's one way to think about it. Over the period of time, I think it's been almost 20 years since you first went out there. What kind of changes have you noticed? And when you go out, do you do kind of detailed analysis and figure out, you know, how many pieces of plastic per area of ocean there is? Yeah, I'm uh, in, in the midst of analyzing our samples at the moment, and we've done some very interesting work in that regard. We've uh, trawled at 10 meters uh, during both rough and calm conditions to see how much is dispersed in the water column, and then uh, simultaneously trawled on the surface. So we'll have a kind of an idea of how this stuff thins out as uh, it gets deeper in the ocean. And uh, we're going to count that. Uh, we're going to weigh the plastic, we're going to weigh the plankton, we're comparing the uh, artificial material to the living life out there, and we're finding that there's much more plastic than life. In 1999, we found six times as much plastic as zooplankton out there, hmm. and I'm thinking that number is going to be uh, a factor of 10 squared more uh, this last voyage. I mean, this was much, much worse than I never saw. It even got me to thinking about cleanup because I've been against uh, wasting time trying to clean this up. It's too remote, and there's no real incentive to do it. But when I saw the quantity out there this time, I'm thinking the folks that make this stuff have to take some responsibility and get out at least quantify this and research it and find out how, you know, how they can get some of it up because it's getting bad out there. So all of this recycling that we're doing, like the uh, the little bit of plastic that I do buy, I, I, I try to limit it, but I, I put it in my re recycling bin. Some of it goes in the garbage if they, the recycling doesn't accept it. Um, uh, it's hard to imagine how it would get up in the ocean, get into the ocean, or is it not that plastic that gets into the ocean and some so there's some other way that it gets there? Uh, the uh, uh, variety of plastic polymers is truly astounding and uh, equally astounding is the paucity of polymers that can be profitably recycled uh, mm -hmm. there, there's just uh, very few plastics that really result in a net gain to the recycler it's not like aluminum or steel where you can make good money you know recycling or copper wire you know uh, things that melt and purify themselves in the melt. The, the plastic has to pretty much be downcycled. It's never going to be thoroughly cleaned because it's uh, such an open polymer and, and you don't have to heat it much above the boiling point of water to get it to melt. So it doesn't drive off contaminants. And, and so it can't be used for food contact. can't take a milk jug and make another milk jug. You have to put virgin plastic uh, next to the food. So there's still going to be a demand, even in recycled plastic, for virgin material uh, for food contact, which is one of the largest segments of the plastic industry. Hmm. And so all of this plastic winds up in the ocean, and obviously it doesn't look good. It's ugly when you go there. Does it do, I'm sure it does do damage beyond not looking very nice. Can you explain a bit about what the harm is? Well, we break it down into entanglement and ingestion. Uh, there's also the aesthetic component. It's truly disgusting uh, to be swimming out in a garbage patch in the middle of a deep mm -hmm. blue, beautiful ocean. I mean, this is 
crazy. Uh, but our scientists out there swimming, and my co-captain Dale Selvam, uh, he said he never seen anything like it. He was disgusted uh, by uh, snorkeling and and this quantity of trash. It's like the mouth of one of our urban rivers after a rain, you know, uh, all kinds of stuff. So that is is part of the problem. But there are uh, health effects as well. Uh, not that uh, you can't get sick uh, from seeing ugly stuff. <laughs> but uh, the um, entanglement issue is a great one. Uh, the organisms are trapped by the plastic and can't move. I've got pictures of what we call the mausoleum under this island we discovered where it had snagged onto a gill net and the fish that uh, habitually attract to this island uh, were snagged in the gill net and had turned a ghostly white and uh, made fantastic video, but it was very eerie underwater to see this mausoleum of dead fish on this floating island out in the middle of the Pacific. Now, then there's uh, ingestion after entanglement, and ingestion refers to the uh, discharge of plastics uh, by uh, of the, the pollutant load that they carry into the organism that eats them, as well as the blocking and scarring of the digestive tract. So... You have two mechanisms there, you know, uh, the, the kind of physical uh, impasse that's created by this plastic waste, uh, which kills a lot of whales. And then you have the chemical uh, imbalance, which uh, creates crashes in seabird populations while it's thinning their eggs, these uh, endocrine disruptors, hormone replacements that are in the plastics. So... Uh, those are some of the mechanisms by which uh, uh, the stuff is uh, not only ugly but uh, uh, harmful uh, biologically. And so you've described how it affects animals, and obviously that's, obviously that's terrible. And uh, you mentioned seabirds, and I've seen the photographs of, I, I think that there's like thousands of albatrosses that eat the plastic thinking it's food. And, and you, you may have dying. up to 100,000 dying of uh, the chicks dying every year. I mean, there's millions on the island, but when you're getting 10% dying, that's not good. Um, and, yeah, uh, there's another uh, problem with uh, plastic waste in the ocean, and that is connected to climate change. Uh, the uh, way that we sequester carbon uh in the ocean, one of the ways is through what's called the marine snow. Uh, everything that lives and dies in the ocean basically uh, turns into this kind of marine snow that precipitates down into the poor waters of the sediments at the bottom of the ocean mm -hmm. uh, and, and sequesters there. And uh, the plastic act like little life jackets holding this stuff up, slowing down carbon sequestration. So... This is a, another, you know, we hear about how, well, when the ice melts, the rocks are black, so they absorb more heat. Well, here we have plastic in the ocean slowing down the sequestration of carbon from living organisms. So uh, that may, you know, it's a lot of it. We're, uh, we'll be able to quantify that to a degree after our study. Uh, but we won't, we won't have be able to quantify the weight of the plankton that's uh, stopped from going to the bottom but we'll have some idea of uh, the amount of plastic 
uh, in that area where there's a lot of plankton 10 meters down uh, that can become tangled into this material. So the entanglement issue goes even down to the tiny microorganisms you can only see in a microscope that then get into these tiny threads. I've been pulling a lot of threads out of my samples uh, coated with this marine snow, and I've taken some pictures of it. I'll be showing it to the Department of Public Works in Alhambra uh, next week. Hmm. So uh, can anything be done? Uh, you, you, it sounded earlier like you weren't very hopeful that the existing mess can be cleaned up. It no. Uh, uh, everything is in an incipient stage now. Uh, the first uh, legislative bans are coming into effect with uh, the plastic bags. Uh, there will be <clears throat> initiatives to stop the styrofoam clamshells, which are another big problem. I know the other day I tried to buy a styrofoam cooler, and I couldn't. Uh, they'd been taken off the shelves at 7-Eleven. Huh. So that's a step in the right direction, getting rid of styrofoam. And, uh, yeah, uh, there are legislative solutions, but the, truly... Um, the, the virtues of plastic, the, the use values, uh, the, the uh, innumerable niches that it fills, and the ability to be molded into any shape and have any strength properties or flexibility properties you choose to infuse it with, and let your imagination run wild. And, and with the advent of laser printing using polymeric uh, ink, so to speak, uh, you're building things out of plastic, houses and everything else. So this uh, doesn't look like a kind of uh, activity that's going to be uh, diminishing in the near future, and, and the recycling has never kept up anywhere near with the production. It's a huge gap. Uh, you may get uh, out of 300 billion pounds, you may get 5% uh, of that or what uh, – of uh, 1.5 uh, billion pounds uh, recycled out of out of the production of 30 billion pounds that we have every year, and, and, uh, and not 30 billion pounds. Yeah, 30 billion pounds are 30 million tons. Those are uh, equal to one another. 30 million pounds and uh, 30 billion pounds and 30 million tons. Uh, so. That's a tremendous amount of plastic, but uh, the, the recycling does not keep pace with the growth and the use of the material. So I'm not optimistic uh, because in a lot, the, the economic system thrives on waste. Uh, it, it, you, you don't want people to have things that last a long time. There's no turnover. It doesn't keep the wheels running. You know, you want things that break and have to be replaced. And a lot of those are plastic and there's no recycling for them, then they're just going to become part of the soil. I've spent the hour before I got on the phone with you uh, sifting compost in my yard and pulling out plastic from the compost. It's part of the terrestrial environment, too. We are legislating certain changes, as you mentioned, like uh, some geographic areas don't allow plastic bags anymore. Uh, but those seem like small changes when you look at the overall problem. When I go into the grocery store... Uh, when I used to use plastic bags, the bag itself was a very small portion of the, all the all the plastic that I brought out of the store. Like you, you look down aisles and you just see aisles lined with plastic. Um, oh my! I know. That's doesn't matter whether you're in Japan or 
China or Argentina, you're going to walk into a 7-Eleven type store and you're going to see shelves lined with plastic. Is there anything at all that gives you hope? Or if there was a solution that, that we could implement, what would it be? Would you... Well, I think uh, the, uh, the solutions have to be based on local uh, production because then you eliminate the packaging and, and then we have to also embrace the technologies that make things that do tend to get lost into the marine environment marine degradable. So we have to look at... Uh, there's a different standard uh, for biodegradability than marine degradability and terrestrial stuff needs to be biodegradable and uh, stuff that gets into the ocean needs to be marine degradable so that it doesn't last forever uh, and, and we need to uh, make uh, basically the recyclability of the item part of the design uh, you can't expect entrepreneurs to figure out the plethora of plastic types that come from the consumer marketplace and make a profitable sort. You know, the big problem with recycling is the sorting. And there's so many different types, even on one item, it's so hard to sort that you waste all your money and time in sorting and you can't make anything on the back end. So uh, that's the problem with plastics. It's just too much variety. So uh, that's a you, how can you be optimistic when the whole concept of freedom has devolved into a variety of shopping choices? You know, uh, this is the the mantra of the, the establishment. So I don't see where the optimism is in that. Hmm. If anyone listening wanted to take some action, make some change in their life, to somehow like do what they can to make some sort of difference, what would you would you have anything to suggest? Well, the uh, refuse is uh, sort of the same as reduce. Uh, the first R should be reduce. We need to reduce the quantity made and, and, and the variety and the quantity we consume. And in order to do that, you're going to have to refuse a lot of plastic. You're going to have to say you don't need that straw or carry your own stainless steel or glass straw. You're going to have to say you don't need that cup. <clears throat> you don't need that bag. You've got your own. You know, you're going to have to refuse a lot of ridiculous packaging. And you can, you know, unpackage some of your stuff and leave it at the store and say, look, uh, you know, you should be uh, taking care of this or dealing with your supplier. That There are companies like Rico Copier that will not accept uh, products uh, from companies uh, in their manufacturing process that will not take back the packaging uh, in which their products come. So there are zero-waste companies pushing towards, you know, a circular economy, and, and that's the goal. So whatever you can do that kind of makes your own mini circular economy and demonstrates the the viability of that concept, uh, that, that would be what I would recommend people do. Sounds good. Uh, so I'm just looking at the time. Uh, I want to run through a few quick questions. Feel free to give uh, short answers. Uh, your organization is Algalita. Uh, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Algalita Marine Research and Education. No institute, foundation, or anything afterwards. It's just a nonprofit that's involved in marine research and education. So it's Algalita Marine Research and Education. And what is next for you and Algalita? Is is there anything new you have planned or that you're working on? 
Yeah, I, I think uh, we need to get all the folks that want to clean up this mess together to talk about ways to do it. And we need to get all the citizen scientists from around the world that are feeling the brunt of this new pollutant and have begun grassroots organizations to deal with it together as well. So I'd like to plan for something next year, uh, the end of next year, to kind of bring those folks together. Uh, we're also going to be continuing to sort our samples from this latest voyage and doing presentations uh, as the data becomes uh, more clear. And uh, uh, then uh, we have uh, a new international ambassador, Dale Selvam, that is working with the board and our donors to uh, determine uh, the, the most uh, viable direction for the organization in the future. So, um, you know, we're, we're in the midst of uh, determining our uh, larger, longer plans at the moment. Hmm. That's cool. Sounds like you have a lot planned. Uh, if you could go back in time 20 years and talk to yourself when you first started Algalita, what advice would you have for yourself? Right on, brother. <laughs> Nothing you would do differently? No, hell no. I did it, man. <laughs> uh, who do you admire most in your field, in in the area of reducing plastic or in the field of uh, I admire uh, Dr. Uh, Hidoshige Takata uh, at the Tokyo University of Agriculture and Technology in uh, Japan. Uh, he was the one that first uh, uh, made the link between the plastics and the pollutants uh, that led us to understand how they transmit uh, harmful chemicals in the marine environment. Um, and he's been a solid ally. Uh, from the beginning, and he is uh, founder of the International Pellet Watch, uh, which if you find these pre-production plastic, everything that's made out of plastic is melted from these little pellets. They're called nurdles. They're little plastic resin beads about the size of a BB. And these things are littering the beaches around the world, and you can tell a lot from looking at them uh, as a chemist. And so... He solicited people sending him a couple hundred of these from anywhere they find them, and he's made graphs of the pollutant load in these pellets from around the world. So he's really pioneered citizen science, and that's where I think we have to go in the future. We, people talk about big data, but you've got a big population here. You need big data from lots of people. That's the way you need to build the big data that's really going to count is the data we get from the, the people, the 9 billion people in the world, or mm -hmm. however many there are. You know, they're headed towards nine anyway. So, uh, yeah, uh, the, uh, that's who I think I, I really admire uh, for doing this. And also there's uh, Dr. Andrade that uh, was the first uh, chemist to uh, talk about how the plastic breaks into bits and becomes microplastics and creates this uh, plastic soup. Uh, he's a... A great scientist in this field, and then uh, I admire Dr. Curtis Evesmeyer, who wrote the book uh, Fluxometrics. He uh, really, uh, you know, uh, pioneered the study of these garbage patches and predicted their existence. And uh, he's been an active person in, in helping people understand how our trash becomes uh, part of the environment. So uh, he, he was a big help to us as well. Cool. Uh, and you have written a book called Plastic Ocean. 
I believe. Yeah. If so, with the excluding your book, if you could convince everyone on the planet to either read one book or watch one documentary. <laughs> why, why do I have to exclude my book? Okay, That's no you, fair. You, you, can, you can include your book, but then the, end, the question is the top two. How about two books? My book and. Yes, How about that? sounds good. Your book and, uh, what's what's number two? Uh, uh, das Kapital. But that's too that's too hard a reading. How about uh, uh, how about um, Das Kapital? What what is that? that uh, okay, that, that's an old book. Uh, let's have one a little bit more modern. Uh, how about um, uh, Reason and Revolution by Herbert Marcuse? No, uh, how about Counter Revolution and Revolt by Herbert Marcuse? Is that in any way related to the environment, or it's just a it does have a, 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 a chapter on nature and revolution, yeah. Uh, and if people want to find out about your organization and what they're doing, uh, or if they want to get involved, are you looking for volunteers or donations or anything else? Yeah, we definitely are looking for donations, definitely looking for volunteers. And it's a non-profit, I believe. We are a 501c3 non-profit scientific and educational organization, absolutely. And the website is algalita.org? Correct. A-L-G-A-L-I-T-A dot org. All right. So I uh, hope everyone listening will check that out. And you can check us out at thegreenpodcast.com where I'll post links to all of the resources that Captain Moore has mentioned. And you can also sign up to hear about our future podcasts. Captain Moore, it's been great talking. Uh, I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have also. I wish you all the best with solving the plastic problem, and thanks again. All right. Thanks for having me.